I want to start out this morning, before we go to the book of Colossians, by recalibrating our vision over the course of this year. What are we talking about this year? Radical hospitality and gospel intentionality. And so you see in your bulletin this morning, we've re-put this. This is in front of your pew every week. We want to put it in front of you again. And so what are we about here at Trinity for this year? Radical hospitality. Inviting someone who does not what? Yet have a church family out for dinner, out for lunch, to your home. Crossing the threshold of a home can be a sacred moment in our disconnected world. And so we have a, a few testimonies of folks that have been doing this. One, Kingdom Meals with Neighbors has resulted in a small home Bible study at our house. Praise God. We invited one of our neighbors over for dinner last night. Found out that they are new Christians. You're talking about things that matter over a meal. Sounds a little bit like Jesus to me. Be careful. God might be up to something. Another one. Had my two neighbors over for dinner time. It was a lovely time filled with stories and kindness and smiles. We are getting together every two weeks. Thank you for the idea that you shared about soup night. And so this is us living a life of radical hospitality. Let me get the slide there. What are you supposed to do once you have a kingdom meal? Celebrate hospitality with those who what? Do not yet have a church family. You're supposed to put those in the stake. Back up one. Right? Oh, back. Or wrong way. Back up. Go, go two. Go two forward. Come on now. Come on. Let's go. Hey! Radical hospitality. What are we asking of you? Two kingdom meals for every covenant partner. Can you do that over the course of this year? Just two times. Invite someone who does not yet have a church family. We're not called to huddle together in Christian community all the time. Get out of the salt shaker, right? Into our community, into people's lives. The other one. So we have 46 of those little cool uh, plates that represent salt. You know, you, you you get the picture. We're trying here. We're trying to encourage you to be out, as Jesus says, be salt and light. We have 46. We have a ways to go. We're shooting for 500. That would mean if everybody did two, we would far surpass 500 kingdom meals practicing radical hospitality. Let's go back one now. Gospel intentionality. We are wanting to be invitational. Sharing the gospel. Getting into a spiritual conversation. How many times this year? 50 times? Are we asking you to meet people that you don't know on the street at Walmart and and start talking about all this kind of stuff. No, people you know, people you care about, people you love in the gospel. Three, intentional gospel or invitational conversations. And it's just your job to be a witness. God does the rest, right? We're just called to witness to what we know, what we've experienced in Jesus. And so right now the wave is growing. You see the gospel Encounter stickers. If you have a gospel encounter, go put a sticker on. We have 125. The wave is growing. We still got a ways to go. We're going for a thousand gospel encounters. If every covenant partner just had three over the course of a year, 
the wave, that whole thing would be completely full. Can we do it? That was a little bit weak, but I'll keep going, right? You see, there is a difference between, between being a welcoming church and an inviting church. People have often described Trinity as a very welcoming church. But we could be the best welcoming church in the whole world, but if we aren't an inviting church, you know how people would describe us? Inwardly focused. A welcoming church that isn't an invitational church is simply inward focused. But we want to be, what does our tagline say on our every bulletin, in our newsletters, on our uh, new website? We want to be a community overflowing, being salt and light. And so being welcoming means that you love fellowship. Being invitational means that you love the mission. Do we love the mission of Jesus enough? God might not be calling you to North Africa. God might be calling you right across the street, right across the cubicle, right to other family members in your own sphere of influence. How unbelievable is that? We can be part of the kingdom of God right where we are. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. We'll be reading verse 21 through 23, continuing on in our summer series on the book of Colossians. How's it going reading the 13 epistles of Paul? If you haven't started yet, there is a brochure right as you go out the sanctuary. You can pick up any time. Just one chapter a day for the summer will get you through all the way through the Pauline corpus. Hear God's word for me and for you. Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Our church in particular, and evangelicals in general, are all heirs to the Protestant Reformation. That is, we are deeply indebted to Martin Luther and John Calvin for recovering for us in the 16th century, the gospel of grace as it was expounded by the Apostle Paul. And so it might surprise you to learn how far modern evangelicals have strayed from the gospel of grace and Reformation teaching. A recent Barna poll cites that 84% evangelicals, these are the folks that are supposed heirs of the Reformation, Heirs to the gospel of grace. 84% of evangelicals think that in salvation, God helps those who help themselves. A third believe that a good person goes to heaven regardless if they've trusted in Christ for their salvation. 
And a majority of evangelicals today believe that man is basically a good person. And so when Paul in our passage today says that we are alienated from God and have to be reconciled by him, most modern evangelicals, I suppose, would say that alienation, well, well, that's too strong of a term. Being reconciled to God because of a deep-seated hostility towards God, you know, that doesn't really fit my experimental paradigm of most modern evangelicals. And so what I really need most modern evangelicals, I guess, are saying is just a little coaching, just a little self-help. You can feel free to sprinkle in a few Bible verses if you want to help me be the best version of me that is possible. This is the American gospel. After all, I am a good person. We're all going to heaven and in salvation. God helps those who help themselves. This is the American gospel that is a far cry from Paul's gospel, from the gospel of grace. I would even go so far as to say that we fight tooth and nail against every major proposition of this passage that we just read. Alienated from God. No, no, I'm not. That was never my experience. Well, God in Christ reconciled you. No, no, I don't think so because that was my decision. That was my choice. I was a good person after all. I was really never estranged from God. Well, he did this to make you holy. Well, I, I beg to differ just a little bit. I don't know if that's really the aim of the Christian life. Nobody told me that when I joined the church that I should live a holy life. Where, where did this news come from, right? So basically, we modern evangelicals, to sum it up, we disagree with the Apostle Paul. And in so doing, we basically tell God, God, I really don't need the gospel of grace after all. In fact, Christian Smith, in his 2005 book, Soul Searching, the Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers, the most important book written in the 21st century on this topic, after interviewing hundreds of and hundreds of teenagers about the Christian faith, his conclusions are startling. And they're startling not only because they give us a window into the faith of American teenagers, but they also tell us a lot about the families that are raising these teenagers and the churches that are nurturing the faith of these teenagers. So don't hear me picking on you teenagers today. I'm picking on everyone. But this is what Christian Smith says, after hundreds of interviews, the faith can best be summarized like this, moralistic, therapeutic deism. Did you get that? Let me repeat that for you because I don't think you got it. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Let me spell out what this means. Christianity helps me make good life choices. It's moralistic. Christianity helps me feel happy about myself. It's therapeutic. It's like going to the counselor's office. Christianity is basically, well, God operates in the background of my life. It's deistic to the core. This is the American gospel. He continues to write, the the, the moralistic therapeutic deism means being nice, kind, pleasant, respectful, responsible, and doing one's best to be successful. The American gospel is about, quote, providing therapeutic benefits. 
He says, this is not a religion of repentance from sin, of building character through suffering, of basking in God's love and grace, of spending oneself for the cause of justice. Rather, it's about feeling good, happy, secure, at peace. It's about attaining subjective well-being, being able to resolve problems, and getting along nicely with other people. He quotes in the book a 15-year-old that says, when I pray, it makes me feel good afterwards. But as you know, that could have been a 45-year-old or a 65-year-old. When I pray, it makes me feel good afterwards. Moralistic, it's therapeutic, and it's deistic. Finally, this kind of religion is about belief in a particular kind of God. One who exists, who created the world, but not one who is personally involved in our affairs. How distant. How unrecognizable from the gospel that Paul the Apostle preached. God operates according to this type of faith in the background of our lives. And we tend to call upon this God to make us happy or peaceful or less stressed out in life and, and maybe successful. The therapeutic side. God is like our psychologist, like our counselor. Or He's there to help you be kind and pleasant and good. The moralistic side. God just wants you to be a better version of you. This is the kind of faith that is being propagated all across the country in pulpits and in churches just like ours. Not just like ours, but a little bit like ours, right? This is how he finishes this very stark and striking chapter. He says this, The language and therefore experience of Trinity, holiness, Sin, grace, justification, sanctification, church, Eucharist, heaven and hell. These were all part of the fabric of Christianity just a few generations ago. Amongst most Christian teenagers in the United States at the very least, is being supplanted by the language of happiness, niceness, and an earned heavenly reward. He says it's not so much that U.S. Christianity is being secularized, Rather, and more subtly, Christianity is either degenerating into a pathetic version of itself, or more significantly, Christianity is being actively colonized and displaced by a quite different religious faith. And if that doesn't shake you in your boots, there's one part he said after interviewing hundreds and hundreds of these kids, He said that he had the distinct impression that his interview was the very first time that any adult had ever engaged and asked about the faith of these teenagers. Can you imagine? To get to 18, 19 years old, no adult has ever, ever engaged you about your faith, about God, about holiness, about grace, about justification and sanctification And the whole gamut of biblical Christianity. This is a simple biblical gospel. And we are capitulating time and time again in our faith. Shame on us. Shame on us as a church. Lord, have mercy. And so with this in the background, we turn to this gospel of reconciliation as found in Colossians chapter 1. The gospel of salvation, you might compare it To an umbrella with many spokes. 
And I'm going to open this without impunity and fear, right? Even in a building. You have a cluster of rich language surrounding so great a salvation. It's like the gospel writers were searching out every metaphor possible to talk about our salvation in Christ. And so I compare it like a little bit like an umbrella. There's several spokes, each one important to the gospel, each one important to salvation. Let me go through these again. Let me get the uh, next slide. Justification. What is justification? The sinner stands before God, guilty and condemned. I am a hundred percent guilty. I stand ready to be judged. Christ takes my place. He takes the sentence that the judge should have pronounced against me. And he acquits me and gives me the righteousness of Christ. It's courtroom language. Next, there is redemption language. The sinner stands accused before God on the trading block as a slave. Bitters were about to take that person home as a slave, take you home as a slave, mistreat you, cruelly beat you. And Christ comes in and He says, no, I want to purchase this person. He is my beloved child. Rescues you from the marketplace when you're sweating under the sun about to be sold into slavery. Third, spoke of the wheel, spoke of the umbrella. This is not a wheel. It's an umbrella. Okay. Forgiveness. The sinner stands before God the judge with a tremendous debt. It can never be repaid. It's countless. You could work your whole life. You can never repay it off. God says, I will forgive you. Economic turn. You have a debt. Your debt is forgiven and forgotten. It's very hard to preach under an umbrella. Uh, an adoption. The sinner stands before God as a stranger. Outside a family. God says, no. This estranged, this orphan. I'm going to bring him and her into the family as a son, as a daughter of the true king. And so here is the fifth Cluster of language, reconciliation. It gets at a relationship. Sinner stands before God as an enemy, but becomes a friend of God. Relationship is repaired from alienation to loving acceptance, from enemy to a friend. And so don't you see how in salvation, all these authors are just grasping such a great salvation what could we do to possibly describe what happened to you when you came in through Christ, believing in Christ alone? This is all what happened. And so the big idea is this. Your alienation was caused for Christ's reconciliation so that you could live a holy life. Or as I put it up there, from an enemy of God to a friend of God for a holy life in God. And don't you get the unbelievable sequence? This is an unbelievable chasm to cross. It's a huge bridge from being an enemy of God. Not only does he call you a friend, but then he goes and says that you're, we're doing, I'm doing all this that you may live a holy life from an enemy all the way to a holy life. Only our God would be this audacious to do this for us that we're enemies. So two movements. In this passage, first movement is from an enemy to a friend. 
Paul says that you were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, a mindset totally opposed to the things of God, totally opposed to God's kingdom, totally opposed to God's word, totally opposed to living a holy life. When someone is alienated from someone, they're not talking, they're not seeking, they're estranged and hostile to the other, hostile in mind. We weren't just apathetic. We were hostile to God. This week I was listening to a podcast of the authors of Vertical Marriage. And the man said, after nine months of being married to his wife, now they're married for 39 years, and this is why they write the book, right? But after nine months of marriage, he looks at his wife and he says, I'd rather be dead than married to you. This is not something I counsel when I do premarital counseling in your first year. A little less honesty sometimes. Keep a little emotions in. I was listening to the same podcast a few months ago by Kerry Newhoff. He was interviewing an old children's pastor of Saddleback Church of California. Rick Warren is the senior pastor. This children's pastor had five to seven thousand children every Sunday morning. He was in charge of hundreds of volunteers. You know what he does? He comes home early one day from work. His wife has been journaling. He looks at, at what the, the journal, it's, it happens to fall open. And he noticed what she has written down. She says, I hate my husband. It's this kind of hostility, this kind of hatred that we have towards God. My senior year in high school, one of the meanest guys that I've ever known was my, was my high school basketball coach, Carl Taylor. Guys were quitting right and left. By the end of the season, most of us hated basketball. He physically roughed up one of the guys, didn't get fired. This is the kind of animosity and alienation that was part of our DNA. If we were seeking, it wasn't for God. If we were searching, it wasn't for Him. Paul says that we were hostile in our mind, doing evil deeds. In other words, our evil deeds flowed downstream from our hostile mindset that was deeply opposed to the things of God. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. From enemy of God to a friend of God for a holy life. In God. Look at verse 22. He has now reconciled you. Who is the subject of the verb? What is the subject of the verb reconciled? Come on now. Most of you passed high school, right? The subject of the verb reconciled is God. Who is the object? Remember the charting out? You, right? Do they still do this? Do they still do this? Uh, the, the charts, Becca? They don't. I will do this. You are our, 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 our youth intern now. I will do this with you. I will, this English class that you supposedly passed, I'm going to go and, 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 and shore you up just a little bit. In other words, God is the subject of reconciliation. God is reconciling. Who is he reconciling? You. You are the object. God isn't the object. You are the object. God reconciled you. Why? Because you were alienated. I was alienated. In my mind, doing evil deeds. What does Ephesians chapter 2 say? You were a little bit sick. Terminally ill. No. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Then he goes, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. How crazy it would be 
If we had a funeral here at Trinity, there was an open casket and you came down the aisle, right? And you started trying to rouse your friend. Come on now. Come on now. Let's go on. Let's go on home. Time to go. That's crazy, right? Why? Because he's dead. Your friend is dead. He's died. He's not rousing. He's unresponsive. This was us spiritually. We were dead in our sins, hostile to God. And so some evangelists love to use the analogy of God throwing you a lifeline. You're drowning, but all you have to do is just reach out, take the lifeline. This has some evangelistic appeal to rouse you to faith, but the more biblical analogy would be that you're not struggling with sin, you are completely drowned in it. Completely flatlined. Dead. Unresponsive. God jumps into the water in Christ. He rescues you. He gives you CPR. Then He drags you back upon the shore. This is who God is. If God saves at all or not at all. Did you get it? God saves all or not at all. This is the salvation that we have in Christ. It's His work, His life, His ministry. He breathes, breathes life into a dying man, life into a dying woman. God didn't throw you a lifeline and ask you to grab on. He jumped out of the boat, performed CPR on you to make you alive after you have flatlined. We're not sick. We're not even terminally ill. We were dead. God made us alive. God reconciled us in Christ, in His body of the flesh, by His death. This is the gospel of grace. The second movement of this passage is equally astounding. Why did He do all this? There is a purpose for your reconciliation. Not so you and I could live some cheap version of the American gospel, like moralistic, therapeutic deism. Not so God could operate in the background of my life. Not so I could be happier or more at peace or less stressed. Not so I could be nicer and a, a kinder, a little bit better morally. What does Paul say? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. Holiness means being separated from sin. Cut off from sin. Fighting the good fight of faith against your sin. And so I want to ask, Are you fighting for holiness? Are you growing in holiness? Are you fighting your sin through faith? 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, if you were growing in your walk with God, you were growing in holiness, being separated from sin. Why do you think Satan wants to convince you such and such is really not a sin? Such and such, you know, it's, it's okay. Such and such, everybody else is always doing it, right? Are they still saying that today? The day's kids, everybody else is doing it, right? That's what they said when I was a kid. If Satan can convince you something is not a sin, you can never be separated from it. You can never grow in holiness. And therefore, you can never grow in Christ. My good, as my good friend Kevin DeYoung once wrote, the world provides no cheerleaders on the pathway to godliness. The world provides no cheerleaders on the pathway to holiness. This is why God saved you and reconciled you. God also wants to present you blameless. What does this possibly mean? Here Paul is borrowing an image from the temple and the sacrificial system. Numbers chapter 6, 
Verse 14, talking about people coming into the temple to bring a sacrifice. And he shall bring a gift to the Lord. One male lamb without blemish. One ewe lamb without blemish. One ram without blemish as a peace offering. Paul's applying this kind of holiness that worshipers brought before God in the holy temple only in one place in the world, in Jerusalem, on the temple. He's applying that kind of holiness, that kind of blameless life to you and I in our very ordinary lives. Isn't that incredible? This is the reason, this is the aim of our reconciliation. Finally, that you might be above reproach. Unaccused. No one can accuse you of anything because you're in Christ. And so from an enemy of God to a friend of God for a holy life in God. Look at the start. Look at where we began. A complete enemy of God. He brings us all the way to saying and suggesting maybe we should be like those animals, that, that perfect offering presented unto the Lord before His face. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your deep truths of the Gospel. We thank You that You call us from an enemy to a friend to live a holy life. Lord, we ask, Lord, that we would not be content with this American Gospel being propagated all around us. We would long and search out biblical faith, the biblical gospel that's so simple and yet so transformative. We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.